Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell, a laid-back podcast discussing the scum of humanity that you love to hate. You can hear all our content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for juicy comments and gossip. Please give us a nice review. Should you not, your safety cannot be guaranteed. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to A Glimpse of Hell, a podcast conversational style about elements of true crime in history, some of the political and social you know, elements that go around true crime and some of the famous true crime uh, stories of history. And I'm here with my co-host, Matt, and we're able to do this in person. Yeah, I know. I can't believe it. I thought, thought it would never happen again. Yeah, it's... Uh... Great to see you. Um, Great to uh, see you. Yes, uh, talking about the worst people that uh, ever lived. Yes. So um, Matt and I have been living, obviously we live in Melbourne, and we are the longest lockdown city in the world. We won't go into uh, <clears throat> any sort of political machinations about why we are, but that's what prevented us from recording in person for such a long time. And because I have a bit of a slow internet connection where I live, the Skype would constantly drop out on us. So we actually resulted to recording, I think, one episode of this and also our other podcast, When Movies Were Good, over the telephone. Yeah, I know. It was uh, interesting sound effects. I felt like I was calling into some sort of morning breakfast show on the radio. Yeah, or some late night, you know, you know, talk show where they talk about your love life or something like that. So... It was interesting. At least we were able to keep going, and and Matt was Matt did make a good point. He said, "Look, it's just important for us to keep going, come what may." But it's lovely to be back in person. We did have a two microphone setup, but now we're back to a one microphone setup. <laughs> yes, uh, MacBooks like to make the controls a little bit complicated, and I spent about an hour in Rachel's living room trying to get them to work together. But I'll work it out for next time. So we're just making do with one for now. That, that, My apologies. No, well, it's still a lot better than the phone calls. <laughs> well, true that. So um, we're here in person and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell. We are doing someone who is known but not really known to general people in history. You know, when you talk about the annals of um, despots and criminals, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Idi Amin, you know, the list goes on and on. But one person that is is well known but often overlooked, it's whether it was a cover-up that was done or for whatever reason, but when you actually sort of go into what actually happened during this time, it's the horrible things that King Leopold II, not the first, but the second of Belgium did in the Congo so-called free state, which really wasn't a free state at all, which is now the Democratic People's Republic of Congo um, in Central Africa. And this was during a period in the 1800s where he used... Even later than that, really, almost the the 1900s. That's true. I think it was sort of... He ended sort of 1908. He died in 1909 um, and, and in shame too, in a way... Um, but what he did to the citizens of the of the Congo in his quest for some personal fiefdom and also 
trying to be this big colonizer. Obviously, Belgium itself is a very small country. And it was, even though the Parliament of Belgium, etc., at the time had no interest in colonizing anywhere, he did. And he actually personally colonized the place to just ravage it for all its natural resources and decimate the natural population. Matt, you pointed us to this one. What, what are your thoughts on this just initially going forward? Well, I only found out about Leopold II relatively recently, not even a year ago, and I was just shocked that he, from knowing his crimes against humanity, which they would well be classified as now, that uh, so relatively few people know about him. He seems to have a relatively uh, high, uh, uh, high amount of uh, public knowledge and status in Belgium, where he's from, uh, inevitably because he was their longest-serving monarch. He was sort of the Queen Victoria of their country in terms of reign mm -hmm. uh, length. But um, the fact that this person who was responsible long before Hitler and Stalin's atrocities for the death of 10 million people, and it's not that he was um, uh, not uh, hated and found out in his time, it, beginning, of course, from abroad and through the networks of missionaries, and not to mention the first investigative photography done with uh, Kodak cameras that mm -hmm. uh, began to show more pressure on him to do at least sham investigations. And by the end of his life, uh, he was actually apparently booed and his co his um, uh, his coffin spat on by members of the public. And for a, a monarch in a very... Serene, uh, in a very uh, serious ceremony for that sort of behavior to be happening. That says something about the public reaction at the time, although that was also as much for his uh, rather poor private life because he was basically one mistress after another and mm -hmm. exploitation and expensive building projects. But it just seems that the knowledge of his horror and crimes has kind of faded over many generations, partly by historical accident, partly from the efforts of his own family to create a, a sort of um, more splendiferent um, image of him through statues and everything. Yes. So basically to get an idea of how um, King Leopold II came to be is you have to sort of just do a brief background about how Belgium came to be. So after the defeat of the French in 1814, a, a United Kingdom of the Netherlands was created and eventually split again during the Belgian Revolution of 1830. So only 1830, which is a long time ago, but when you compare it to some other royal families, it's not that long ago. So 1830 to 1839, and then that split into the three modern nations that we know of Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. So essentially when Belgium was getting together, uh, when they were forming their government, they decided, you know, looking at the route the French had gone, etc., etc., they wanted to have a constitutional monarchy. So they kind of created a monarchy out of thin air as such, and they were looking around for candidates of people to become the new monarch, and King Leopold II's father, Leopold I, was the one who essentially said, yeah, okay, I'll take the job on. Now, not that he wasn't already, you know, in the aristocracy. He was uh, in the English royal family because he was married to um, Princess Charlotte of Wales. So technically speaking, King Leopold I is Queen Victoria's uncle, if that makes sense. 
well, everybody had a relation to Queen Victoria then. Everyone did. And, and it's talk about keeping it in the family. So Leopold was the first king of the Belgians and he reigned from 1831 to 1865. So if you think what was happening in their country and then what was happening in somewhere like the US, which was going through massive changes, the start of the Civil War, and he was the youngest son of the Duke Francis of the saxe coburg southfield family. So that's a, a big family all through Europe who has, you know, in the UK, Spain, all over the place. So in their royal families. So uh, originally started off as, um, you know, in the Imperial Russian Army. He fought against Napoleon after the French troops overrun overrun different areas where they were fighting during the Napoleonic Wars. Eventually, he ended up in the UK. He was a very well-known member of the royal family there. Then when Princess Charlotte um, unfortunately died after childbirth, I believe it was, uh, he was then offered the position of the first king of Belgium. And he'd already been offered the position of king of Greece as well. But he was like, okay, I'll take the Belgian one. Did they ask for a reference to <laughs> I'm not sure. I think they were like, can you please do it? Because nobody else is is, is willing to do it. Uh, and then he did end up marrying again Louise of Orleans. And then she was the mother of King Leopold II. King Leopold II's elder brother actually died in infancy. So he was the eldest surviving son. So unfortunately, he was the one that got to do it. So I didn't realise that Belgium was so young in its, you know, the whole process of being a country and of its monarchy and they just picked someone to be the monarch. Yeah, it is a terrifically young country. But mind you, there's a lot of countries uh, that have been established like in the last 200 years, especially in Africa. Uh, there was actually a man I remember about two or 300 years ago that managed to trick a bunch of investors into thinking a new country had been founded and this was when a lot of uh, new ones like Mexico were coming around, as at least as their current geographical um, space that we know. And uh, that was uh, one of the biggest swindles that ever happened. Yes, and, and when we say it's a new country, we mean the modern, the modern version of the country, obviously not their ancient ancestors, which dates back millions of years, um, you know, through all the various immigrations through Europe, all of the different sort of cultural backgrounds, um, you know, obviously... Belgium itself, the area of Belgium has a long, uh, steeped history, but we're talking about modern Belgium and the modern country of Belgium. And I didn't really realize, I mean, all of the European monarchies are sort of related in some way or another. So getting back to King Leopold II, he was born on April the 9th, 1835, and he died December uh, 17th, 1909. So he was the king of the Belgians from 1865 to 1909. And he seemed to have this will of establishing Belgium as some big imperial power, I guess, sort of, you know, challenging Britain uh, at that point that had been quite a dominating force around the world. This was when politics was basically like playing a risk board. Yeah, it, it really was. It was how much power can and how much land can we grab off people. Yeah. And I guess one of the places to do it was 
a very fractured continent of Africa where there were no such countries as such. It was just different tribal groups living in different areas. Well, you had some nation states like Egypt, uh, uh, yes. but um, uh, like yeah, definitely the borders were a lot more fluid than what European states were accustomed to. Yes, so the British had already gone to South Africa, and of course we had the English South Africans, the Dutch South Africans, and what was happening down there. And because he was wanting to establish Belgium as this power, he decided to develop the Congo River Basin, and then which gave way to the his formation of the Congo Free State. So basically what happened was he made this massive land grab, private land grab, it wasn't on behalf of the, the Belgian government, and basically went to Germany, to Berlin, during a conference that they were having about African nations at the time, and said, oh, well, I'm going to do all this humanitarian work there. I'm going to civilise, quote, unquote, the natives, so to speak. And they granted him the ownership of this land on the basis he was going to do that for the native inhabitants of the Congo region. But it turned out anything but that. Yeah, well, it's hard to know exactly what he had in mind at first, because the first thing that would have been in his mind obviously would have been both profit and glory for himself as a monarch. And he probably had ideas of, okay, if I can get a foot in the door and maybe set up trading person, something that might be a start. But very quickly, he, he must have realized that the best way to get wealth out of the region was to uh, uh, plunge it from its, its natural resources, particularly rubber, because this was when machinery with all its, uh, uh, all its uh, motor bands, electricity with the wire coating, uh, the rubber wire coating, there was a huge demand for natural rubber, and so the Congo was one of the best uh, places to source it from. Uh, but yes, and so it would have been hard enough to source it by uh, tapping these vines, but it became a brutal system of uh, the the native um in a cat in, in a cat in the hat situ not cat in the hat in the swallow the cat situation. Yeah, so yeah. the 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 native cut down the rubber um only to be suppressed by the soldier uh, to not meet a quota. The soldier was suppressed by a uh, superior above him, a uh, uh, superior above him, and all the way up to the crown. So it was a pretty much a do everything for profit and uh, hopefully nobody ever finds out about the cruelties down below. Yes, because I think one of the reasons the Congo was such a great place to harvest the rubber from is that the trees or the vines that they had there were already matured and to go to another country and plant that from scratch, it would take a long, long time to be able to harvest that rubber. So essentially, and essentially he did go there. That was sort of the second part of how he wanted to have his um, career and make all this money for himself. But initially he was there to ivory, minerals, you name it, anything else he could pillage off the land. So these poor people, so essentially what he did was he hired an explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, to be his man in Africa. He um, did a lot of mapping of the area. He travelled up and down the waterways of the Congo River Basin. He set up trading posts. He was building roads. And basically persuading local chiefs who had no understanding of the language to draw up these treaties, these agreements with him to be able to use the land the way they wanted. And these chiefs had no idea what they were signing an X to their name for. They didn't read. Obviously, there was a language barrier. 
So these chiefs, I think, thought that they were signing something that would help their people, more money for them, investment. They probably thought they were helping just to establish a trading post nearby. Exactly. And uh, it just, it's unbelievable. Some of these treatings, treaties were then sort of subsequently doctored to Leopold's liking to put him in a more favourable stance. And basically they were at a disadvantage from the get-go. Well, an important loophole in most of these treaties that is a problem when you have developed nations all over the world in interacting with uh, uh, communities that are often um, semi-hunt or fully hunter-gathering is that they will say that uh, those colonizing powers are entitled to any land to use that is not being currently occupied and in a hunter-gathering community very little land is mm. going to be like permanently cultivated and so that basically means that we're confining you to your villages uh, you need permission to uh, walk outside of your own community yeah that's right so even his government so you know belgium is a constitutional monarchy it's not like the monarch can just reign free will over anything it's rather like well we're part of the constitutional monarchy because queen elizabeth is technically the head of the state of australia um, as well as several other countries including her most important one which is the uk uh, but the belgium's government at the time felt that colonies were too extravagant for such a small country they had no sort of external navy no merchant marine to speak of so, but Leopold didn't care. This was essentially his private business dealing and the Belgian government didn't really know what was going on down there. So they started with ivory um, and then other minerals and other things that they could get from the land. And then as Matt was saying, once we started getting into a bit more of the industrial re revolution time with bicycles, cars, now there was a need for rubber. Yeah, uh, as far as the Belgian government goes, Yes, most politicians and general public would have been ignorant during the majority of Leopold's reign, and we'll say this uh, in very scary perspective, in 20 years he managed to be responsible for about 10 million deaths yes. in just 20 years. But when the Belgian government came in, they could have done a lot, well, let's just say they, they fell far short of the mark for actually turning uh, things around. Yes, yeah. So he essentially had his own, um, obviously he had Leopold II had his own bureaucrats working on the ground in the Congo Free State. And like sham corporations that were done a lot of the operations but were basically people in his employ. Yes. So the whole thing was a scam from the get-go. So he had these, um, basically a 19,000-man private army, the Force Publique, which would march into a village and hold the women hostage and force the men to scatter into the forest and try to, they were quotas that they had to gather certain amounts of rubber. And as the price of rubber soared with industrialization, and it wasn't just, uh, you know, bicycles and cars, it was all sorts of manufacturing appliances that needed this rubber belts to make um, machines work. So as much as things were improving for some people around the world, they're obviously in the Congo Free State, it wasn't quite that. And as the price of rubber went up, the quotas went up, and the vines that the rubber comes from near villages were drained dry, and then men had to just go around 
walking for days and days and days to try and find new vines. But in the meantime, everyone was so preoccupied with these quotas and the barbaric acts that would happen to people if they didn't meet these quotas that essentially the workforce was used for that. So no one was farming, no one was fishing, no one was creating anything else. And that was another reason that the population fell into such a brutal state is not only the the decimation of people who were being killed for not reaching these quotas or for going against Leopold's um, bureaucracy, but because they were essentially starving to death because no one was doing anything else. When they weren't being uh, literally um, shot or cut to bleed to death. And one of the other reasons of the severe brutality was a direct consequence of the system of corporal punishment to keep the population in check as well as their guards because... Um, the authorities, both for budgetary reasons and security, were determined to make sure that none of the soldiers in their employ used their bullets for anything other than uh, the nece- what they felt as the necessity of uh, shooting a certain amount of people to motivate the others to work. And if um, they found that any bullets had gone astray, if, the, for example, they thought a soldier had used it to go hunting or to as hoarded for having a rebellion afterwards, um, they would um, insist that they also brought a hand of whoever they shot with them. That's right. And yeah. so quite often if they either just uh, simply missed their target or used it to shoot down an antelope or something, um, they would often just uh, kidnap a random person, cut off their hand, leave them, to, leave them to their fate and use that as part of their quota tally. Yeah, and there are, as Matt said at the start of the podcast, there are the missionaries, etc., that went down there and started documenting this. This is how it got out to the rest of the world, especially the UK and the British were sort of at the, uh, uh, sorry, the UK and the Americans were at the forefront of bringing some of this, these atrocities out. And you can actually see the old photographs of these poor people who did manage to survive, the ones that um, were just used as a reference point to get a hand from to um, to show this evidence that someone had been killed. Um, these poor people just sitting there, how they survived out in the middle of nowhere with their hand being cut off. I mean, my gosh. But these just these pictures of these forlorn people who had been so decimated and brutalised by everything that was going on there with the way society had. And also another thing that made the, you know, essentially the Congolese region had about, they're saying, 20 or so million people. By the time Leopold and his cronies were out of there, it was about 10 million people. So, yes, there was lots of, but also what happened to the societies when men and women are separated, the birth rate drops down as well. So the families had been decimated. No one was having children, really, because they just couldn't do it. Yeah, well, whether or not it was in uh, genocide in the de- in the dictionary definition, it was certainly the effect. That's right. So unfortunately, what this forced labour that Leopold had pioneered, um, it was copied by other European states like the French, the Germans and the Portuguese with their colonies that they had around the world. There were other people in, in Africa, obviously the French were in Africa too, the Portuguese, like they were down in parts of Asia as well. Was it the Portuguese or the Spanish were in, you know, in what's the Philippines now? So they were going all around the world and they were using these similar barbaric practices, obviously not to what Leopold II and his cronies were doing. Um, And 
one good thing that happened is once all this information, these pictures and stuff started coming out, there was an international outcry and that pressure finally forced him to relinquish his private ownership of the territory and it became annexed to the Belgian government and for a while it was known as the Belgian Congo. Um, although he did have the gall to make the Belgian government pay him for the... <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, the gall of this guy, what an... Oh. And it's largely because of him uh, that Belgium has so many um, massive public uh, buildings and monuments of, uh, of such high uh, quality because he... Uh, this was essentially his goal uh, to have extraordinary amounts of money, and so he could um be his own Caesar in terms right. of building. It was sort of to build um, monuments to himself, and obviously the Belgian government wasn't going to do it, so he decided to, to, to say nothing of uh, lots of private villas for him and his sixteen-year-old mistress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Matt was also saying he had a very colourful private life as well. Obviously, officially married and had children with someone, but also. There were other mistresses on the side and illegitimate children, I believe, as well, that mm. came from him. So um, so once that handover happened, in a, in a good way, I suppose, he died the following year, uh, but his only son had actually died before him. So Leopold's nephew, Albert I, succeeded him to the throne. So I guess we've got King, I believe it's King Philippe, who's um, the Belgian monarch at the moment who's as I said to Matt's quite good looking so <laughs> of course was he the one that had the mystery daughter am I mixing up countries um they don't they all have mystery daughters and stuff over there I'm sure that everyone's so Probably. intermarried to you know um you know the 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 monarchy in Monaco is married to some monarchies in Luxembourg is married to you know everyone but I suppose you've all got to keep it in the family because they're all from these original families anyway aren't they so um I suppose they were the original people who uh, got into that sort of idea but I guess at least the Belgian people can take comfort that it's not one of his direct children that their current heir is um and their current person on the throne is related to although related to him through the family so as Matt was saying, at the end of his life, Leopold was very unpopular with his with his people as more and more stuff started coming out and all, obviously all the histrionics with the buildings. And, and I believe, I've obviously, over the last few years, there has been a lot of, um, you know, protests all around the world about certain issues to do with black populations and slavery and the, the modern implications of that. And I believed a lot of his statues were either, you know, set upon some of them were taken down or some of them had paint thrown over them during sort of the last racial rights sort of last year with George Floyd starting in the US and going around to different Western countries. Um, so I did see a few photos where they'd tip some paint on it and I think some of the larger ones have been removed by now. Well, I think those particular ones, because uh, they were really meant as uh, propaganda efforts during the 30s to um, encourage... Um, Belgium's support for its colonial interest in that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they probably should have been removed by the choice of a committee long ago, but that's another matter. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, I've seen in in the US they're removing certain statues and I'm like, uh, you know, sometimes you can't, you know, the, the best way to learn from history is to kind of keep it around so you remember what actually happened. And I don't think that removing everything, but in his case, I'm actually on board with removing <laughs> with removing his statues because we're not yeah. talking about a few thousand people that were affected by his actions. I mean, we're talking about half the population 
of a country and he never actually visited the country. He never went there and saw it from himself. From everything I've read, it was just, yeah, that's just some place I'm going to use and abuse. And Congo's the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, it's uh, going through such a horrible time now, and really it is a long-term consequence of everything he did. It is. So I guess the the legacy that, that comes out, all of this, and a lot of countries in Africa face this. They face, you know, dealing with their colonial past, but also the terrible problems that it's caused now for them in their future and going forward. You know, you look at places like Zimbabwe, um, used to be known as Rhodesia, you look at the problems in South Africa with the black community, the various English communities, the Boer community, you know, the Dutch community down there, um, the violence and stuff just as general life in South Africa is terrible for people there from all different backgrounds. And you look at Liberia, which was actually um, a state that America helped to create with people that had been freed from slavery to go back to to Africa and start a new country. And that's that's not a good place to live either. So there's very few places in Africa that have a lot of stability um, because essentially it's just one strong-minded person coming in and taking over the whole place and running it just like the colonials did. Yeah, well, there's just never that uh, bit of a breaker a bit of stability uh, quite often that people just need to sort of um, uh, help get things on track again. Uh, it's sort of, sort of a constant tennis match between one exploiting power and the other. Yeah, that's right. So he obviously had a bit of a, Leopold II this is, um, he obviously had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about Belgium's size, which I don't know if that's relating to other things that he may have had a chip on his shoulder about, but he was constantly trying to make Belgium a a lot more than what they wanted it to be in his own honour, I suppose you could say. Well, this was a time when colonialism was as much about economic reasons, it was also a a status symbol. Yeah. And so he was probably determined to uh, get any type of uh, colony or colonies um, and think about how to make money out of them later, possibly. But also the method of which he... uh, was administering his uh, authority because although we did we have naturally seen uh, like you were saying inspiration for his uh, brutal treatment of native populations in other parts of the world in the general part um the of course we all say in, we all know in retrospect that colonialism is wrong but at least um in many other uh, states uh, the that phase of simply raw exploitation for materials had uh, passed and they were trying to integrate them a bit more into an economic system or mm. at, at least pretending to themselves that uh, they had some benefit to the locals. But Leopold was literally just milk everything for all it's worth and leave it to crash and burn. Yeah, essentially he was. So he, I mean, you know, the Belgians are aware of this um, and you know, he often spoke... Not always. It's become a bit of a controversy about how little is actually taught in schools and everything. Yeah, I think it's good to teach all aspects of it. I suppose, like, recently, I think our education minister here in Australia has come out and said, you know, we need more, you know, teaching about Australia's good side of history. And I do agree with that. But I just think you should just teach everything the way it actually happened, not try to put any false spin on anything. Well, I think just... There has to be more knowledge, period. I mean, for example, our own Prime Minister, he about a year ago got into that embarrassing situation in a radio interview where he 
absentmindedly uh, said that Australia never had slavery and no, we were never a carbon copy of the system that America had mm. in the South pre-Civil War, but mm. it's a very um, uh, inaccurate way to describe the situation. And so that you, you need to have a better um, basic knowledge level so that even your own prime minister and key leaders can't make um, ignorant comments like that. Yeah, that's true. And you, it's, you know, you just have to take the good and the bad together. And I think certain people want to erase the bad and just talk about the good. And then some people are just hell bent on just discussing how disastrous everything is. And either way is, is not right. You need to take the good and the bad and the bad and the good. And that's the, that's the best way to deal with history, with the facts of what happened as best as you can research them. Yeah, there was a time when the greatest controversy of history was whether or not it was too much like entertainment to have a documentary on the BBC. And I think most people wish that was the biggest problem nowadays. Now you have everybody with misinformation on Twitter. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, Leopold, yeah, he's a very flawed person. Perhaps he thought... I think the thing is with all of these, you know, quote unquote, real life uber villains that we have, the Hitlers, the Stalins, in some corner of their mind, they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing the right thing for their country. And that's how they justify it. And they overlook. So when he started getting the reports of all these people dying there in the Congo and the brutality of how his bureaucracy was running the place with his say so, mind you. Uh, it's for the good of Belgium, so I don't want to know about it type thing. And that's not how life works. So, yeah, very, very sort of sad story and a, a terrible legacy. And, um, you know, and he wasn't like such a uniting force either. He didn't speak Dutch terribly well. Uh, and I think for a monarch, especially in a trilingual country like Belgium, you really need, you need to be able to speak all the languages, I think. Yeah, he often had a rather low opinion of his own of his own country. Uh, he'd have probably preferred to take over the French crown if he could. Yeah, I mean, you know, he had, you know, I guess he did do certain certain things, you know, certain political things within Belgium that perhaps helped them. Um, but he is, you know, he lived in very sort of luxurious quarters in places like the French Riviera. And he was estranged from a lot of his children too. So a very, very flawed person who perhaps had the wrong ideas. And I'm just kind of glad that the family shifted over to the nephew and then they went on from there. I'm sure we could look through their history and see certain things that weren't great. But um, at least the current monarch of Belgium isn't directly from his children. So, yeah. Mind you, even, uh, I don't know completely now, but... um. Uh, even for passing generations, there can be degrees of de delusion. Like we, it was uh, largely at the efforts of the monarchy during the 30s. Like we said, that a lot of um, Leopold's statues were put up mm -hmm. because his own generation um, were happy to, you know, boo his coffin into the ground. Yeah, that's and right. even when Congo was um, uh, granted independence, the king at the time did a sort of farewell speech, and it was rather uh, condescending. It was literally like saying that. Um, you are what you are today as Leopold's gift. Right, which is probably, you know, those poor people and they're still suffering down there and you see some of the terrible things like what Idi Amin did in Uganda in the 70s and what some of these other, you know, what happened in um, things that happened in Somalia, things that happened in other parts of Africa with the different warring communities and I just, you know, as someone that has African ancestry myself through my dad, who's from an African island, 
I just, you know, and I have slave ancestry through him because they immigrated to his island as slaves uh, from the colonists, the English and French that live there. Um, I just sort of think to myself, oh, when are we ever going to see the end of this? I hope one day we do. And I hope, you know, because it's just such a, for the, for the general people that live in Africa, it's just, you know, you go, someone was telling me once who traveled over there, I can't remember which country he was in. He goes, you know, you go to the post office and I'd like to post this off. And the, the clerk sort of looks at you like, maybe I will send it off for you. Maybe I won't. And that's just a daily, you know, something as simple as that. It's like, well, are you going to send the letter or I've paid you the money? Yeah, depends on if I feel like using a stamp today. You know, I might just keep the money for myself. Okay. You know, that's just like in all the different regions of Africa, it's, that's just we don't actually know if anything we do is ever going to get done. And this, and all of the governments seem to use very much like Leopold did as their sort of personal, you know, kingdoms that they can just do whatever the heck they want with. So. And, of course, um, the authorities of Leopold's generation created a lot of countries that were dependent on cash crop economy and no real opportunity to uh, develop into more industrial powers. And so that means that they are vulnerable to uh, all the issues of having been dependent on one natural resource. And in the case of the Congo, they have a vast array of natural resources, apparently, but because it's just they just can never get out of... Um, uh, war from one uh, from one side to the other, they uh, haven't had the chance to uh, properly exploit those sources. Yeah. So it's... hopefully things will emerge better in coming generations. Although the Cold War has been over for over thirty years now, <laughs> yeah. the perhaps the one one ray of sunshine is that uh, a government can't uh, uh, get uh, support d despite um, any of its failings if it says that it's uh, between one superpower or another. Which doesn't sound much 30 years after the Cold War, but we have to think as centuries at a time in this in a situation like this. And you can just hope that um, there's some improvement like that. Yeah, definitely. So this has been a really interesting one to talk about. If you, if you guys out there know of any other similar situations to this, I'd be interested in learning more about them. I mean, it's, um, you know, I guess the conversation that we want to have on um, A Glimpse of Hell is not just individual, you know, mass killers or people that go in and do this and that in various terrible situations because there's so many of them. But there are these despots that really have wreaked havoc over a whole – it's bad enough, you know, somebody like a Ted Bundy or a Gacy in their neighbourhoods, in the towns where they lived in, what they did was just horrible and the people who live there still live with the stigma of it. But can you imagine a whole country that was brutalised, you know, by certain people and um, – yeah, it's, I mean, you look at the Germans, how has what happened affected them? It's almost like a lot of them want to block it out and don't want to know about it. And um, uh, But then other people do want to talk about it. So On the other side, you have people from outside that zone who want to try and load all guilt onto them. But uh, for issues like uh, anti-Semitism and others, they forget what history their own country may have with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I suppose I guess one of the themes of our, our little discussional podcast here is that um, it's just better to be honest about all sides and, and what happened because, um, you know, if you look deep enough into certain issues, everyone seems to have a lot of issues with how they behaved at various points. But thank you, Matt. It was a great chat about a very interesting thing about history, a very tragic situation. And thank you for suggesting that. 
So we might come a little bit closer to home in our next podcast. We will sort of finalise the details, meaning an Australian sort of story that we want to do. And we may have a special guest star, but we'll confirm it closer to the date. Uh, We may have um, someone very close to us and very close to Matt. Uh, who might come in and and share her thoughts on um, a true crime case because she's actually quite interested in true crime as well. Well, fingers crossed uh, for all they go into schedule. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being a part of our conversation and we we will visit with you next time when we take a glimpse of hell.